Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced at the University of Minnesota, featuring conversations with prominent scholars, researchers, and other movers and shakers in the social world. In this episode, we talk with David Garland from the NYU Department of Sociology and NYU Law. Professor Garland was in Minneapolis recently, appearing as the keynote speaker at the University of Minnesota's Sociology Research Institute. Well, thank you for joining us on this episode of Office Hours. And we're here with David Garland, who's coming to give a talk for our Sociology Research Institute, our annual event. And you're coming to talk to us tomorrow about your new book. Uh, It's called Peculiar Institution, America's Death Penalty in an Age of Abolition. So what was sort of the central driving question that you wanted to answer? Simple. It was, why on earth does the USA still have the death penalty, given that the rest of the Western world has long since abolished it? But there were a couple of other subsidiary questions, too, which were, how come the states that still have the death penalty have it in the very peculiar form in which it exists? Its institutional design is really... I would say poorly adapted to what seemed like its ostensible purposes. So how is that to be explained? And finally, what is the truth or otherwise of the connection between today's death penalty and America's legacy of racial violence and lynching and so And what did you conclude? What What is it about the United States that's so peculiar? So there isn't one answer, because the USA is many kinds of places, right? Mm-hmm. So, so that the death penalty exists in today, 34, maybe 33, if the governor of Connecticut signs mm-hmm. the new bill. Mm-hmm. Um, states, it's been abolished in 16, 17. Some of these states abolished a century ago, more than like. So um, whatever it is about the USA, it's not universally distributed across the right. whole nation. And so some of, some of the assumptions that people make, that maybe American culture is more punitive or, or maybe there's a more puritanical style here or maybe just racism is endemic. That these these seem less convincing explanations. So what I what I argue in the book is that what's distinctive about the USA is a number of things. Most importantly for this purpose, the radically devolved local and popular character of democratic decision making and the fact that that local democratic control includes control over climate. There are many federated nations, there are many nations in which local authorities have powers um, and jurisdictions. Very few of them, other than Australia in the 1960s and Switzerland in the 1940s, very few of them give local authorities control over climate punishment legislation. Um, That control is devolved in the USA. 50 states and the federal government have um, historically been able to choose what kinds of punishments they'll have, whether they'll have the death penalty, um, and they've chosen differently. It turns out that they've chosen in very patterned ways. Yeah. Um, the more the smaller, but also more demographically homogenous, racially homogenous, more liberal states um, have tended to abolish the death penalty. They tend to be clustered in the north and northeast of the country. States in the south, which have uh, large black populations, very high crime rates, Republican governors, tend to have retained the death penalty. Um, and there are a number of states in the Midwest that have the death penalty and don't use it. Um, it's on the books, but it's very rare. There's about a dozen states in the country that are death penalty states, so-called, but in the last 40 years have used, have executed death penalty uh, death row inmates on only three or fewer occasions. Right, right. You read a little bit about the Supreme Court. So, how does the mm. Supreme Court fit into this idea of decision making? 
Right. So, so um, to step to step back about the control of the death penalty, I said, and it's true that the Constitution allocates control over crime and punishment, including the death penalty, to the states. Mm-hmm. Um, however, the Supreme Court um, charged with upholding the Constitution and regulating federal and state authority, according to the Constitution, could and sometimes has come close to, or on one occasion has come close to, ruling that the death penalty in the USA as administered or even in principle is unconstitutional and could in that way um, abolish it. One of of the things that you need to know about the death penalty is that in all the nations where it's been abolished and around the country, around the US, I think you're probably around the globe, Mm -hmm. about half the nations now really abolished it. In every case, the abolition has occurred from the top down by legislative elites, despite the fact that public opinion supports the death penalty. In two occasions in South Africa and Hungary, it was a constitutional court, but by and large, it's the same story that it's the national governing elite that abolishes it. Well, in this country, in the USA, the national governing elite can't really do that. The US Congress doesn't have jurisdiction over the death penalty, right? Constitution given to the states. Um, however, the one national institution that could abolish capital punishment is the Supreme Court. Now, the Supreme Court in 1972, in the case of Furman versus Georgia, um, invalidated all of the existing death penalty statutes across the country. Um, there were 40 states in the federal government, the military, um, at that time. And it did so because it was uh, decided in this case that the death penalty was being administered in a way that violated the due process uh, guarantee of the 14th Amendment and was cruel and unusual in ways that violated the Subsequently, the number of the states, 35 of the states, um, rapidly reintroduced new death penalties with new safeguards and provisions to make them more uh, compliant with due process regulations. And what the court then did was to uphold most of the new statutes. And ever since then, ever since 1976, Ever since then, the nature of capital punishment in the USA has been determined and defined in an interactive process between state legislatures, and indeed the federal legislature, and the Supreme Court. And one of the reasons that we have, the primary reason that we have such a bizarre death penalty today is that the um, the court has done its utmost to try to um, ensure that no one's put to death without due process, mm-hmm. without appeal, without habeas review. Um, and a consequence of that set of safeguards is that today, if an individual is sentenced to death, and that death sentence can only really be imposed because of the court um, for murder, mm-hmm. all other crimes um, in practice will not be met with a death penalty. If a death penalty is imposed, then the likelihood is that it will never be executed because the process of appeal and habeas petition mm-hmm. review overturns about two-thirds of all death sentences. Right. Um, and those few death sentences that aren't overturned are executed 14 years on average after the sentence is imposed, sometimes nearly 30 years. So that strikes me as a very poorly designed means of punishing the worst crimes because it can hardly be deterrent. It's not certain. It's not swift. Mm -hmm. It can hardly be retributive 
in the sense that the um, the notion of proper punishment being imposed is undermined by the constant questioning of whether the proper punishment was imposed. Right. Um, nor is it any any more effective and incapacitating um, than life prison after all, which is now the standard alternative sentence. And finally, if as is often said, the idea of the death penalty is to provide some kind of satisfaction and closure to the victim's right. family, the deceased mm -hmm. person's surviving family, then that's a cruel joke because mm -hmm. they watch while the person that killed their loved one is sentenced to death, mm -hmm. and then decades of repeated efforts to unsentence him yeah. to death, during which time he typically becomes a hero of the death penalty defense bar. Right. Because he is now the victim of the injustice, the death penalty. Mm -hmm. So it looks looks like the opposite of retributive, victim satisfying punishment. So for all these reasons, it's a strange, peculiar institution, and it's been made to be that by the efforts of the Supreme Court to render it lawful, mm -hmm. while at the same time allowing local democratic processes to render it. Mm -hmm. So for people who are just staunchly in defense of keeping the death penalty, what's What's their strongest argument? The, the the strongest argument, maybe the only powerful argument, but one which is actually hard to gain say, hard to predict, is that for some crimes, the death penalty is the appropriate punishment. Mm -hmm. That the the moral equivalence that uh, punishment ought to contain has to involve the killing of the person who did these atrocious killings. So that, that, that's the best argument. Arguments about deterrence are um, highly implausible, although they can't be disproven um, any more than they can be proven. Um, arguments about retribution um, right now is the argument that deserves proportionality. But what you would say to the people who argue for the death penalty is that it may be in principle true that some people have death as retribution. I don't myself find that convincing, but some people do. Um, however, it, it turns out that in the American constitutional system, it's impossible to deliver that retributive punishment, either in ways that guarantee it's not dealing with an innocent person, or in ways that guarantee it being swift and certain and uniformly distributed across the deserving what patterns do sociologists and criminologists see about the people who end up being sentenced to the death penalty? Okay. What goes on there? So that, that's a major feature of death penalty social science. One of the primary reasons that the Supreme Court came to invalidate the death penalty in 1972, in the case I mentioned earlier from North Georgia, is that it was shown fairly convincingly that the uh, the black defendants, particularly black defendants who killed white victims or raped white victims, since capital rape was still a death penalty offence right. in the South in the nineteen sixties, um, that black perpetrators of crimes against white victims were much more likely to be sentenced to death. Black victim, black black defendants typically, but especially black defendants um, who killed white victims. Um, since the reforms of the 1970s, I would say that the um, the race of defendant disparities have more or less disappeared. In other words, black 
murderers are no more likely to be sentenced to death than are white murderers. And in fact, the death row today has more white inmates than black or Hispanic. Um, on the other hand, the race of victim is a crucial determinant of sentencing. Um, so if you look on death row today, there's something like, I don't know about 35% black, 15% Hispanic, 50% white, something like this. Mm -hmm. But the victims of these individuals are 85, 88% white. Right. Um, and what, what that suggests is that the, the juries and one of the other distinctive and foreign observers would say strange, um, and inappropriate things about the US death penalty, the jury decides on sentence as well as guilt. Doesn't just decide this person guilty or not guilty, decide this person deserves to be sent to death or not. Mm -hmm. sent to death. Um, and it seems very likely that the typical death penalty jury, which in this country is death qualified, which is to say prosecutors are enabled by the law and upheld by the Supreme Court, um, to object and disqualify jurors who have scruples about imposing the death penalty, uh, which leads typically to the exclusion of women and African-Americans from juries. So juries are more than um, proportionately male and white. Um, and when they're deciding on what kinds of crimes really do deserve death, mm -hmm. the kinds of crimes that victimize people like them, committed by people who are not like them, mm -hmm is more than likely the outcome. Now, in this country, um, this, the primary version of that process is the sentencing of black defendants. But the, the process in which subjective decisions are made about individuals by groups is always going to discriminate against individuals who are regarded as outsiders or low status or culturally distant um, or somehow or other disreputable or unattractive. In other societies, that's a story about class, mm -hmm. or a story about religion, or a story about region, or ethnicity. In this, in this country, it's all of these things, and overlaid by race. Right. I kind of want to return to something you said earlier that I hadn't thought about, which is the way that um, a person sentenced to death sort of becomes a hero. Can you, can you speak to that a bit more, give mm -hmm. an example of... But that, that process is like... So the, the, the most recent example would be Troy Davis in, in Georgia, who actually was put to death a year ago, um, but amidst international um, outcry and protests and so on. And Troy Davis, for the longest time, mm -hmm. has been assumed to be um, innocent. Mm -hmm. and Or that's to say there's been a strong, so, a strong movement protesting his conviction on the basis that he, that he is innocent. Was innocent. Um, and... When there are claims of innocence surrounding an individual, he or she, and there are still a handful of women on death row, um, become clearly uh, viewed by their supporters and sometimes by impartial onlookers as being the victims of um, a system that's not foolproof or worse, a system that is racist and is uh, not beneath framing individuals. Um, so the, the, the innocent death row inmate is the classic case of um, someone who becomes a hero to um, the capital defense bar, but also all the anti-death penalty 
movement. But there are many people on death row who are regarded as being properly convicted of murder, mm -hmm. not innocent, mm -hmm. but improperly sentenced to death. Mm. Um, and in fact, it's arguable that there's no one on death row, there's no one who's been sentenced to death, who has been provided with adequate assistance of counsel at trial. Um, and and the, the, there's a constitutional guarantee to adequate assistance of counsel, effective assistance of counsel. Um, and the failure to deliver that should be grounds for a new trial right. and sentence. Why do I say that all 3,250 people on death row could be claimed to have uh, been given inadequate assistance of counsel? Well, the reason is this. First of all, no rich people ever end up on death row right. because they can employ these lawyers. But more importantly, any lawyer who's defending a murder case where his client, her client, is facing uh, capital punishment ought to, with the proper experience and expertise and resources, be able to supply enough in the way of a mitigation case in the penalty phase where the jury's got to decide how much aggravation, how much mitigation. Any adult accused of murder in his or her background will have circumstances that could be presented to a jury that would question whether he, or would raise the question, isn't he deserving of some mercy and sex life? And a good lawyer will always be able to mobilize that kind of case. Mm -hmm. The fact that people get sentenced to death tells us that they haven't had a good lawyer at trial. Um, and typically what happens is they will languish on death row for a decade, at which point the state will begin to get serious about a warrant for execution. Um, at that point, the volunteers who provide appellate services and, and habeas petition services and litigation in the federal court will begin to volunteer their services in a kind of triage to the individuals who are really facing death rather than just facing decades on death row. Mm -hmm. And they will relitigate the cases. And what they will show, they can't try the facts again, but what they'll show is that the case that was put together by counsel or the behavior of prosecution in the trial can be shown to violate the constitutional rights of the defendant, primarily the constitutional right to an effective assistance of counsel. Mm -hmm. um, so 15 years, 20 years after the sentence was passed, the sentence will be overturned. Because eventually lawyers got on the case who knew what they were doing. Right. And a footnote to that process. Not happening the first time and allowing 15 years of legal process in which mm -hmm. the state courts um, first of all have to hear direct appeals and then the state court and the federal court have to hear habeas petitions and the average number of um, reviews of any death sentence is nine reviews over decades of time. All of that is inordinately expensive. Yeah, right. Millions, literally millions of dollars spent on litigating sentences after they've been passed. Um, with the more or less guaranteed result that they'll be overturned in the vast majority of cases. As a consequence, states such as New Mexico, New Jersey, Illinois, now Connecticut, and there'll be half a dozen others in the next decade or two, states that have the death penalty but also have a robust system of legal defense and have 
appellate courts or a federal district court um, or governors that aren't gung-ho in favor of the death penalty. Mm. These are states that have the death penalty, sentence people to death, and then undo the sentence at great expense decades later. Yeah. They're beginning to notice that that's an inordinate waste of taxpayers' money. <laughs> right. uh, yeah. uh, 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 and, you know, like, duh. <laughs> um, and governors, sometimes lame duck governors that are about to step down, other times governors that, that realize that their democratic um, votes are pretty secure, are beginning to take the courageous step of signing bills that will save taxpayers money, but also will move from capital punishment to life imprisonment without parole, which, by the way, is not such a lenient sentence. Right. I come from Europe. Uh, in Europe, life imprisonment without possibility of parole is a violation of the European Convention on Human Rights. We have people who will spend their whole natural lives in prison, and maybe even some people who are sufficiently dangerous or sufficiently deserving that they should spend their whole life in prison, but they will never do so without review. In this country, life imprisonment without parole is a sentence to die in prison without review. Mm-hmm. So I'm no big fan of that alternative, but at least it allows a kind of um, plausible basis for legislatures to abolish the death penalty mm-hmm. without jeopardizing public safety. Well, and you mentioned just a second ago that it really is a courageous act on the part of maybe perhaps outgoing lawmakers or ones that feel that their votes are secure. And that's really kind of the crux of the issue in a sense, isn't it just how politicized it is and how much it really depends on public sentiment or public, you know, approval of the death penalty. Right. right? That's true. The, 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 um, it wasn't always the case. Up until the 1960s, many national politicians and state governors and legislators were against the death penalty and didn't suffer um, as a consequence. The development of primary elections within the parties and the development of law and order is a major issue. Um, And actually the Furman case, which caused by abolishing the death penalty, mobilized a huge backlash in favor of the death penalty. These things together with, one has to say, a massively and and frighteningly high rate of homicides in this country, which doubled between 1967 in 1965, 1973, just at the time when the Supreme Court was listening to arguments against right. the penalty, yeah. um, all of these things made for a climate in which it was a kind of litmus test. If you were for the death penalty, you were tough on crime. If you were against right. the death penalty, you were soft on crime. And the, the, the classic instance where that coding was um, kind of nailed down in political consciousness was when Michael Dukakis um, was a presidential candidate running against running for Democrats against George Herbert Walker Bush um, in 1988, and um, Dukakis, who was governor of Massachusetts at the time, was against the death penalty, and he was made to pay mm-hmm. for being against the death penalty, right. because um, on national television, in one of the presidential yep. debates, he was asked, what would you do if Kitty Dukakis, your wife, were raped and murdered? Yep. And, and the presumption behind the question was, presumably he'd be raped and murdered by one of the black criminals that you have given furlough to in your Massachusetts soft on crime system because Willie Horton um, was the kind of the key poster child for uh, never being soft on criminals because they go out and rape and kill again. Anyway, Michael Dukakis responded to the question of what he would do if his wife was raped and murdered by saying that, you know, research shows that, you know, there's no deterrence to the death penalty. And at that point, 
you could see, you know, the votes. The end. <laughs> Just go home. Flooding, hemorrhaging from his campaign. Um, he needn't have done so. He could have said, look, you know, of course I'd want to kill with my own bare hands the murderer or rapist of my wife, but that's precisely why you shouldn't allow victims to decide what the right punishment is. He could have dealt with it very effectively. He didn't. Um, but the, the lesson that was learned from Dukakis was you can't be against the death penalty and run for office. From then on, from the 80s onwards, the you've got to be for the death penalty to signal that you're for tough on crime measures. Mm -hmm. I was hoping we could um, talk about your work in general a bit. And um, I recently read, I don't know if it was a book chapter, I think it was an article that you wrote about fitting cultural analysis into studies of of crime. And I'm just curious on um, sort of your take on the use and applicability of studying culture when you're a criminologist or someone mm -hmm. who studies crime policy. Mm -hmm. But the, the, the work I've done on that topic has really been with respect to understanding the history um, and the distribution of different penal practices. Mm -hmm. So I've been less interested in explaining criminal behavior or criminal involvement or criminal desistance. Um, clearly cultural questions, mm -hmm. questions of, of the social socialization of individuals, of their connection to others, of the meanings and motives um, and moralities that they bring to bear on their conduct. Clearly that culture, crime, connection is important. It's not what I've been looking at. But what I've looked mm -hmm. at is the, the role that properly cultural forces or cultural factors, it's not a very good term, um, or cultural phenomena have in shaping penal institutions. Over time, scholarly um, explanations of penal history, penal practice, including, for example, the death penalty, or levels of punitiveness, or the extent to which the prison is used, or the extent to which it's used for rehabilitation rather than retribution. Culture used to be the standard explanation up until the 19, late 1960s, early 1970s. Then it was rendered passe mm -hmm. um, and maybe conservative by explanations and theories that relied on economic and political arguments, mm -hmm. arguments that, that uh, privileged power and control as the um, determinants of how we punish, Argu uh, work that, that is grounded in, in, for example, the Marxist accounts, particularly Michel Foucault's account. Mm -hmm. um, Michel Foucault's work was taken, this one unpunished probably should be taken, um, to regard cultural um, uh, concerns, sensibilities, moralities, as really being a kind of um, epiphenomena or an incidental music because the real uh, processes were processes of power and knowledge um, and their structuring. So when I was a graduate student in, in the 1970s um, and in the 1980s when I began to, to write and contribute in this area, a lot of the work that was done um, disregarded culture or reimagined it as ideology. And ideology, in some sense, was culture as it relates to power yeah. and political structures, political forces. Anyway, the, 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 um, it, it, seemed, it seemed to me that the, the phenomenon of punishment um, is importantly connected to, especially in, in a democratic society where the views of voters and onlookers and jurors, as well as parliamentarians and officials, um, clearly thinking about punishment was related to feeling about punishment, 
related to the sensibilities about punishment. Um, some of the choices that we make in terms of how it is that we um, sanction offenders regard certain sanctions, ones that bruise and bleed and, and brutalize the body as being just inappropriate, and others which cause mental torture or are life-canceling or which actually terminate life by killing the body um, are regarded as acceptable. Yeah. These seem like aesthetic or emotional or, to come back to the point, cultural determinations, cultural distinctions, cultural classification systems at work, and they're less easily understood in terms of forms of power and control than they are in terms of forms of meaning and sensibility and understanding. And and so it seemed to me that the um, the division between the political and the cultural or power and meaning or power and sensibility was a false distinction, yeah. that these that these things cluster, that these things connect. Um, and the work of people, on the one hand in anthropology, like Clifford Geertz, on the other hand in um, historical sociology, like Norbert Elias, successfully reconnect um, the cultural and the political power and meaning, power and sensibility, in ways that I think are helpful mm-hmm. for the understanding of punishment. Pierre Bourdieu is another example mm-hmm. of a a sociological account which is much more sensitive to culture but doesn't regard it as being distinct from and unconnected to power. On the contrary, is always thinking about the way that meanings and motives and aesthetic judgments and distinctions and sensibilities relate to positions of power in a field of political forces. So with that history of academic fads and fashions and dialectical arguments which bend the stick one way and then bend it the other way, that's been the kind of the background to the work I've done on thinking about culture. The first, actually the first book I wrote on criminal justice punishment was really written under the auspices of a kind of Foucauldian and Marxist analysis. And that book didn't talk at all about culture, it talked some about ideology, but it was really interested in modes of power and control and, and politics. Mm-hmm. The, the the second book I did, Punishment in Modern Society, was really an effort to pull back from that and to say, mm-hmm. when we think about punishment as an institution, and we try and think what is the institution of punishment about and how is it how does it work and what, what are its sources and what are its causal forces and what are its effects, then it makes no sense to exclude culture from our analysis. On the other hand, the question is how to include culture in ways that integrate it with economics and politics right. and law. So the the, uh, the Punishment Modern Society book was an effort to think institutionally about punishment as a social institution and to, to do so in a multidimensional way. Way so, so I looked at Marxist analyses. I looked at Durkheimian analyses. I looked at cultural sociology, uh, cultural anthropology, the work of Clifford Geertz particularly, and the historical cultural studies of Norbert Elias. And building on these, tried to show how they were asking different questions about different aspects of this complicated institution, mm-hmm. and how sometimes the questions we ask determine the answers, whether these answers are economic or legal or political or philosophical or moral or cultural. There's no one question that one asks about this one phenomenon called punishment. So basically, I wanted to consider what are the toolkits that are appropriate to the range of questions one can ask about this multidimensional institution. Culture clearly has some place there. I was reading over that pew public opinion data, and 
they've really been doing a lot of studies. Americans think there's too many people in prison, and they think there's too much money being spent. And um, I was just wondering, you know, what your reaction to some of that research has been, and and if you think that the culture of mm -hmm. public support for punitive punishment is maybe changing, or is this just so? First of all, the American people are wrong to think that we punish too many people yeah. <laughs> and we have too many people in prison. Um, and it's good that they've caught up with that fact. Um, on the other hand, it's the American people and their representatives that have created that situation. Yeah. Um, and my guess is that many of the American people polled in these opinion polls will say that we, we punish too many people for too long, but the particular offender that just burgled my house or right. raped my neighbor's daughter or robbed this sort of they deserve never to be let out and life yeah. imprisonment without parole is exactly what they should get so there's a a disjuncture some, sometimes between the abstract opinion and the particular mm -hmm. one however it has to be said that the remarkable diminution in crime rates violent crime and property crime rates over sustained over several decades now has quite properly made crime um, less of an emergency, urgent, yeah. top-of-the-agenda issue for many people in this country. That's not to say that crime rates in this country are low. Our homicide rates are still four or five times right. that of any other uh, developed liberal democratic industrialized nation. On the other hand, um, crime is less pressing as an issue, and crime rates have come down considerably. Our cities, many of them are safer, not all of them. The one I live in, New York City, is considerably safer. Yeah. For these reasons, I think, the relaxation of punitive energy and enthusiasm is to be expected. Mm -hmm. The build-up of a massively extensive penal apparatus, prison system, jail system, mm -hmm. probation system, parole system, in which there are about 7.5 million people on a daily basis, that, of course, is an enormously expensive undertaking. Right. And at a time of fiscal stringency in states where teachers are being laid off and police officers are being laid off, of course politicians are beginning to, and the public are beginning to, um, consider perhaps we were a little extravagant in our right. uh, use of penal resources and prisons and does everyone need to be in there forever? So that's a good question and it's good that people are beginning to consider it seriously and it's true that they're beginning to be measures taken to level off and even to reduce at the margins the rates of imprisonment mm -hmm. and the length of imprisonment. However, I have to say that I'm deeply pessimistic to the point of being depressed about the following fact. that The, the, the mass incarceration, the mass imprisonment system that's been built up in America is one of world historic proportions. Mm -hmm. No nation of any description, but certainly no liberal democratic nation has ever before had a carceral system in which 750 per 100,000 people are incarcerated. Mm -hmm. um, the equivalent in Europe is about a sixth of that, mm -hmm. seventh of that, sometimes a tenth of that. And I really don't see how the United States of America can move towards having normal rates of imprisonment in any time period that one can envisage. I'm not talking about years I'm not talking about decades. It's hard to imagine how in 50 years' time we could have moved. It's taken us 40 years to get to where we are now. Mm -hmm. We started from a fairly high base. There's something like 200 per 100,000 were incarcerated and imprisoned and in jail in 1975. Now it's 750,000. Mm -hmm. That build-up has taken 40 years. Mm -hmm. 
to get back to that, it's hard to see how it can take less than 40 years. Now, I was listening to a very um, powerful, inspiring uh, social activist speech by Michelle Alexander just a few days ago in, uh, in New York. Michelle is the author of a book called The New Jim Crow. It's a book that, that um, argues, I think, powerfully, if unpersuasively, um, that the mass incarceration system is the New Jim Crow. It, it's a lot of things. Terrible. It's not, I think equivalent to racial segregation exactly. Right. Um, people, in, people in prison have gotten there by and large because they've committed a crime. Right. Uh, blacks in the South were segregated despite their complete innocence yeah. of any offense. Um, there are you know, many white people in prison. There were no people who were white who were on the wrong side of Jim Crow. Nevertheless, her argument is that the system of mass confinement, which has been disproportionately suffered by young black men, mm -hmm. increasingly by black women too, um, will not be undone by the kinds of legal reforms that are currently envisaged. It would take a social movement mm. on the scale of the civil rights movement to undo it. And I think that she's right about that, but I think mm -hmm. there's no prospect whatsoever right. of a social movement of that kind. Why? Because the punishment of criminal offenders is not an unpopular right. position, nor is it even a position that violates the values and the constitutional commitments of the American liberal, the American democrat, or the American civil liberties mm. person. Um, it, it's a matter of scaling back excessive punishment. Um, and I think that that will only ever get done through the realization by legislatures and by elites that rendering punishment questions as populist questions was a huge mistake mm -hmm. because the answer will always be more please. Mm -hmm. We're talking about what to do with violent offenders, dangerous offenders, but even drug offenders who might one day be violent and dangerous yeah. or who might be selling their drugs to our children. The popular response, by and large, is lock them up. Let me not see them on my street, please. Mm -hmm. For that reason, it's very, very difficult to see a widespread social movement mobilized for and on behalf of criminal offenders. That's, that's, a, that's a, a desperate reality because the, the tragedy of American imprisonment can't be understated. It's been devastating for not just the, the, the men and women involved, but for their communities, for their spouses, for their families, for their children, for the neighborhoods in which they live. It's a blight. Well, thank you very much for spending time with us today. This has been a wonderful conversation. We really appreciate it. Thank you. All right, that's our show. Thanks again for listening. Talk to you soon.